Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, May 14th, and we're talking three Fool favorites that just reported earnings. I'm host Dylan Lewis. I'm joined by Fool.com's ill-advised indexer of incomplete information, Brian Froley. Brian, how you doing? I'm doing better than my portfolio is doing, Dylan. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know how that feels. Uh, <laughs> it's It's been a little bit of a rough week if you're uh, a little bit more growth-minded, huh? It's been a rough couple of weeks or even couple of months if you are growth-minded. Uh, if you were a buyer, uh, say, in February, the last few months have been brutal. If you have cash on the sidelines and like, like are interested in growth, the last few months have been great. Yeah, we talk about it all the time, but it's it's nice to have some cash on the sidelines so that those days where you're seeing a lot of red in your portfolio feel a lot more like opportunities than they do uh, lost money. And uh, I haven't done any buying immediately, in, in part because I wanted to make sure I was clear to talk about a couple companies on today's show. Uh, but uh, I have some cash on the side, and I'm planning on putting it to use over the next couple of weeks. Looking like there are some pretty attractive buying opportunities out there, especially because a lot of those companies, Brian, were on my list anyways. You know, they were they were companies at higher valuations that I was already interested in. Spoiled for choice. We did a show on Motley Fool Live earlier this week where we had to talk about a stock that we own that was down 25%. I had a few dozen choices to choose from, Dylan. <laughs> That's right. Over the long term, you don't feel those things quite as much. Uh, but short term, man, do they bite. And and that's where you know the people that bought a lot of these high growth businesses in early 2020, uh, maybe mid 2020, are probably sitting on some pretty great returns. If your cost basis is tied to something a little bit closer, maybe the last three or so months, um, certainly for a lot of the more high growth oriented stocks, you might be feeling a little bit more pain. One of my favorite tricks to do whenever I'm feeling short term bad about myself is just zoom out. And the longer I zoom out on my portfolio, the better I feel. Yeah. And so people know that we're not just talking about things hypothetically here. Uh, first business we're going to be talking about and doing earnings on, it's a company I own. Uh, it's Olo. We've talked about it on the show before. Brian and I did a prospectus breakdown when it first came available. Uh, I'm currently in the red on this investment. No bones about it. You know, It was one of those businesses where I'm usually not someone who's buying shares of a business immediately after an IPO. Saw a lot of things that I liked with this company, though. Decided to just get a small tracking position and wanted to see more results come in. We finally have our first glimpse at their results as a publicly traded company. First earnings report came out earlier this week. Brian, what did you see? Well, let's back up and talk a little bit about Olo, because that is not a company that I'm sure many people are familiar with. Uh, to your point, this is a show we did a deep dive on when their S1 came out on Friday, February 26th. Uh, we went through and we said, wow, uh, tons to like about uh, this business. Uh, they did come public on March 19th at $25 per share, and they raised just under $500 million. Now, the name Olo uh, is a shorthand for online ordering, and this company helps restaurants to take uh, customer demand uh, online. They were actually founded in 2005 and first got started by helping restaurants take orders via text message. Over time, they have slowly evolved to build out a software-as-a-service product that is enterprise-grade, and they have done a fabulous job at getting the who's who in the restaurant industry on board. Uh, as of the most recent quarterly report, this company had 400 big-name restaurant brands on their platform, including Five Guys, Shake Shack, Chili's, Wingstop, 
Applebee's, Cheesecake Factory, and more. So that is a cusp of kind of what they do and who they are. Yeah, and I think even in that rundown, our listeners can probably start pulling out the core elements of the thesis with a company like this, right? SaaS provider, recurring revenue, and the major tailwind here is restaurants, brick and mortar, going digital, and creating good opportunities for, in this case with Olo, restaurants to own a little bit more of that experience than be so reliant on some of the third-party logistics apps uh, that they've kind of become in some ways beholden to. Yeah, again, if you are a restaurant train, do you you want to own the customer experience? Yes, it's nice to get an order from a Grubhub or a DoorDash or an Uber Eats, but then those platforms own the customer. You are just a delivery platform. Olo allows those big chains to own the customer experience so that they can use their own app or their own website to place to uh, to place the order and do the delivery. And importantly, Olo partners with many of those uh, those delivery services so that the uh, the companies can still have their orders delivered, uh, but they stay, they they keep the uh, the customer experience in house. That's an important distinction. Yeah, and for people that have been following the delivery trends, the the DoorDashes, the Uber Eats of the world, they know that, that you know that the pandemic has been an incredibly high growth period for these businesses. They have really come front and center. Um, there have been some issues that have come have come along with that, but this has been a booming business period for companies in this space, and that's really what we see when we look at these this first earnings report from this business. Yeah, the first earnings report is a critical one in my opinion. It is basically the company's coming out party, and it sets the tone for what investors can expect out of this company. On that front, man, is there a lot to like here. So the number of locations that uh, Olo has under its platform grew 42% to 69,000. Average revenue per unit grew 61% to 525. And the dollar-based net revenue retention rate remained at over 120%. You mix those at, uh, you mix those together and you got some fabulous results in the income statement. Uh, revenue grew 125% to $36 million. Non-GAAP gross profit increased 151%. So gross margin here increased to 83%. Uh, net loss on a GAAP basis uh, exploded to $26 million, But on a non-GAAP basis, the company remains uh, net income positive, and they generated $6 million in net income. Free cash flow was $4 million. And thanks to their IPO, they now have over, 600, uh, over $580 million in cash on their books. The numbers were great. Yeah, these are these are fantastic figures and people might be surprised to hear where they are on a gap non gap basis on the bottom line. Uh, this I think is probably going to be a business in general that uh, ebbs and flows with small levels of profitability and small losses here and there. Um, certainly not in a period where they're trying to be profitable. And you hear that growth rate, you know that they're heavily in invest mode. But it is a little bit different than some of the other businesses that we tend to see coming public because Brian, this isn't com- this isn't a company that's hemorrhaging money in the way that a lot of other uh, really high growth tech businesses are. Yeah, not not at all. Again, that's why I always like to talk about free cash flow because again, while they reported a twenty six million dollar net loss, their bank account grew by four million dollars during. In the quarter, not including the proceeds from their IPO. So that's an important distinction. Now, importantly, those are just the financial headlines. The company actually had a number of operational headlines that are worth uh, noting out. Uh, the most notable one was they convinced Blooming Brands, which is the parent company behind uh, restaurants like Outback and uh, Carabas, to change 100% to Olo from their own home-built system. That's a major
major customer win that this company scored in uh, in the quarter. They also expanded relationships with brands like Culver's and uh, Nando's. Uh, Nando's is actually uh, a Canadian company, so that shows that Olo's uh, Olo's concept does uh, tr- does cross uh, borders. Uh, and with uh, they expanded their relationship with Union Square Hospitality Group. That is the number of companies that are owned by Danny Meyer, uh, the famous restaurateur. As a reminder, Danny Meyer is on this company's board. That's one thing that we pointed out in the S1 show that we really liked. And the important thing there is Danny Meyer's companies are really fine dining establishments, which you wouldn't really put together with takeout ordering or uh, online ordering. So that really shows that this platform works for both quick serve and at the high end. Yeah, and and we talk about it a lot. It's worth emphasizing, I think, with a company like this, though. When you hear there's a compelling investment thesis, and it's a software space that maybe you don't interact with normally as a user. This is you know behind the scenes. We don't really know we're interacting with it. You want to see the customer list growing, and you want to see brands that have a pretty big footprint, a really established use case, deciding to use a provider. And we have that all over the board with businesses here. You could you could put up a ton of different logos, and it would cover the screen. I mean, this is this is a lot of social proof that what they're offering is a compelling idea to restaurants. That's a really important point when it comes to especially some tech that uh, really is hard to understand. Uh, follow the customers. Where are the actual customers and the experts in the space uh, voting? Clearly, clearly, the big name enterprise restaurant companies are choosing Olo as the platform uh, of choice. That's a major uh, sign. A couple other things to note during the quarter that were uh, definitely interesting. Uh, the company uh, did uh, win over uh, Goop Kitchen, and Guy Fieri's Flavortown Kitchen, those are virtual restaurant brands, aka ghost kitchens. So Olo seems like a natural fit into that market. That's going to be a growing market uh, over time, so it's good to see that Olo is already establishing itself there. Another big and important announcement was that they uh, reaffirmed their partnerships with both DoorDash and Uber Eats. They had an ongoing dispute with uh, DoorDash that was completely settled uh, during the quarter. These companies need each other. That's very clear. So it's good to see that guy get behind them. And then finally, they joined the uh, the 1% uh, pledge. Uh, the 1% pledge was uh, started by uh, Mark Benioff at uh, Salesforce.com, where they basically take 1% of their employees' time, uh, 1% of their equity, and they give it away to, uh, to charitable causes. That's a nice feel-good uh, moment. So uh, Olo really, really got it done in the first quarter. Yeah, there's there's a lot to like in this report, and you know I'm I'm happy to see it as a shareholder because you know companies choose when they go public, and you see a really nice growth story, you see a lot of tailwinds, and it is possible sometimes that company decides, management decides, you know what, this is the right time because a lot of these metrics that look really impressive might be turning south, or they might slow down a little bit in their growth story. Um, not the case here right now. Um, so I'm pretty happy as a shareholder with what I've seen. It is interesting though, Brian, we, we talked about that top line growth figure, over 100% growth. They were put on the 11th, stock's down about 20% since then. Um, and there are a couple things going on. We talked about some of the pain that has been seen with growth stocks in general, but I do think it's worth talking a little bit about what the company guided for and what investors should expect going forward. Because you hear that triple digit growth number and you get really excited. Unfortunately, I don't think that's sticking around based on what we got from management. Um, for the second quarter, management's expecting revenue of around 34 million, operating income on a non GAAP basis to be a little over 2 million. Uh, for revenue, that's about 40% year over year growth. And that's where it's really important to understand where the major step change in growth was and in revenue was for a lot of these COVID businesses. Um, Basically, going from Q1 to Q2 of 2020, they grew their top line 50% sequentially, 
which is absolutely bonkers. You don't see a lot of companies pull off anything close to that. So they are running into much tougher comps for the rest of the year and really going forward for the rest of their time as a business. And that means that that growth rate that we're so excited about now is going to come down. I think a lot of people are still pretty happy about 40% growth, given the gross margins this company has, though. Yeah, no doubt. And one thing that we did call out at the uh, when we did our S1 show is you can, pr- you can probably expect this company's top line to be a little bit lumpy. It is targeting enterprise-grade uh, restaurants. And winning one, one of them can result in a massive gain, uh, massive bump in, in, in revenue. And if they have a, a slow quarter on the sales front, uh, that can result in, in tougher uh, year-over-year comparisons. Uh, this is a company you're probably going to have to be more focused on judging on a year-over-year uh, basis for the, for the full year as opposed to uh, what it did versus uh, the prior quarter. That's especially true when, given the things you just said, that where the quarters they're comparing to a year ago were COVID just getting started and COVID really in full force. Uh, so when I see the company calling for 40% growth uh, for the full year, that's roughly what its growth rate was prior to this, or maybe a little bit slower, but man, you can't complain about that. No, it's it's pretty impressive. And for full year to be like 142 million, roughly, um, that's pretty strong. Puts them at 40% year over year growth. Um, you know, the party's not going to be indefinite, right? That that growth rate will come down as the numbers get bigger over time, and we're we're starting to see that. But you look at this business on a trailing basis, 28 times sales, Brian. That's pretty solid. I think for for the market environment we're in right now, not bad, and and about the same, a little bit less uh, on a forward basis when you look at that full year. So uh, given the margin profile, given the tailwinds behind this business and kind of how early on they are in the growth story, and I think the total addressable market, uh, I am very happy as a shareholder looking at this report. Yeah. One other thing we didn't call out, but I think is worth uh, double-clicking on that we was really impressed about this company when we did the S&N1, this company spends very little on sales and marketing. Because again, it is targeting headquarters of big restaurants. And if you can win one of them, you can get thousands of, of, of sales in one. This company only spent 11% of its revenue on sales and marketing last quarter. That was down from 14% in the year ago period. By contrast, it spent 40% on research and development. That was also down, but I love it when I see companies like this spending enormously on research and development and very little on sales and marketing and still producing incredible top line growth. Yeah, and and given where they are with profitability and and kind of hovering around break even, um, and and where they are with their cash flow, the fact that they have hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in cash and equivalents, they can invest really heavily if they see really good opportunities to do so. They're they're in a spot where if they think that they can really effectively spend with marketing, um, that's a tool that's totally at their disposal, and they have the liquidity and the financial flexibility to pull that off. You got it. All right. Switching gears, Brian. Uh, I don't own this one, but I've been watching it intently, and I'm actually a user of this product, so I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, People might be expecting this conversation on the Monday show where they talk financials, but we're going to steal this one. Uh, It's Lemonade, uh, for folks who don't know, uh, the Finsurance Company, which is a a, a fun little uh, portmanteau that I haven't heard too much aside from used uh, with Lemonade. Fun play on fintech, Brian. Yeah, this is a this is a company that has uh, a lot of fools feeling very, very excited. And given their their growth rates and their kind of differentiated consumer experience, I understand uh, why. But Dylan, you did the homework on this work, this one. What'd you see? So we reported uh, we reported earnings earlier this week, and 
not surprising. Company lost money this quarter, a little bit more than expected. Uh, revenue was at $23.5 million. They lost $49 million for the quarter. Um, and this is an insurance company. And so, you know, for, for all of the talk about the fintech side of it and the tech element of it at core, it's an insurance business. And what we need to be paying attention to here is the enforced premium. It's basically the annualized premium for customers as of the period end date. And that was up 89% to just over $250 million, which was driven by a 50% increase in customers, 25% increase in premium per customers, and the, cust- the company counts just over a million customers to date. I think it's important to understand a little bit of the dynamics here because you can grow your customer count and that's going to lead to top line growth. But particularly in the insurance industry, you can grow by creating bundles, by creating expansion within the policy count that people have. And one of the things that I was excited about in looking at the results from this quarter and what we got from management is they're going to be launching a new car insurance product. And I think a lot of people that have been watching this company for a while have kind of expected this news. Uh, Early registration opened in April. And just for people who may not be super familiar with Lemonade, they currently offer renters, homeowners, term life, and pet insurance. So for me, Brian, car insurance feels like a natural next step here. Um, the huge issue with insurance is getting people in the mix. And you see it with ads. It doesn't matter whose ads you see on the consumer side. They're all touting the bundle. They want you there for everything. And I think that Lemonade's going to find a lot more upward mobility with what they're able to collect in terms of premiums as they widen out their offering on the insurance side. There are also a lot of nice benefits there because it gives them the opportunity to expand their TAM, also diversify some of their, their revenue bases when it comes to those insurance products. Yeah, I love to see that. This is a company that has clearly got optionality in mind with entering all these different uh, insurance uh, options. I really like that they are also focused on uh, millennials, which are, are not the type of, uh, not the consumers that spend big on insurance, but if you can get them addicted to your product uh, early uh, and then grow that over time, uh, that's a wonderful strategy. The thing that always kind of, I don't fully understand about this company is because it's an insurer, the, the way that you have to look at the financials is different than it is for a lot of, of other stocks. Uh, for example, you just said above $23 million in revenue and a $50 million uh, quarterly net, net loss. That's a pretty wide gap between those two things. Not too often I'm interested in a company that reports double the net loss than it did in, in revenue. Uh, what, what happened there? Yeah, there are a couple different forces at play here, right? We have the fact that this is an early stage, high growth business. I think they're about a $3 billion company. And you look at most insurers, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars in market cap. Um, but really, like a big part of this quarter and the story for this quarter uh, was the company saw huge claims related to the freeze in Texas in February. And the place that you're going to see that come through for this business is in their gross loss ratio. It's a pretty standard insurance industry metric, kind of gives you a sense of the claims paid out versus the premiums earned. And so typically, you would expect a sustainable insurance company to collect more in premiums than it pays out, right? That's kind of what enables it to do what it does without getting any fresh injections of cash. Uh, And generally, we've seen the gross loss ratio for Lemonade somewhere in the low 70s, and it's been uh, steadily improving over time. Um, It basically means more money's coming in in premiums than they're paying out, which is what you want to see. In Q1 of 2021, that spiked to 121%. So that's 50 percentage points it went up. Uh, and, and the company said, basically, they experienced a year's worth of claims in the storm's first few days. So it was a, a pretty sizable one-time impact. But I do think it's important to note, the EBITDA guidance for this company for the year 
remains basically in line with the consensus prior to the storm. And a big part of that is the reinsurance programs that the company has in place. Um, and we don't need to go too deep down into that, but the reality is this is, I think, what you'll see as kind of a one-time event and one of the difficulties that comes with being in the insurance industry. Brian, another reason that I'm happy to see them opening up that car insurance product and helping them diversify away from strictly being in the lines of business they are, I think it opens them up geographically a little bit too. Yeah. Uh, again, I love the the optionality here. I love the consumer focus. I love that they're using AI uh, to not only uh, help with customer service, but to to pay claims. I totally understand the appeal of this company uh, from the from the from the consumer uh, perspective. The thing that I always heard, and again, when you're thinking about an insurance company, it's really you have to think completely differently than you do for a a lot a lot of other businesses. You can't just look at revenue and margins and all that kind of stuff and and make uh, predictions because one thing that I thought I understood about Lemonade was that because of their reinsurance, that their the margin that they were going to earn was essentially fixed in place. Because doesn't this company pay out if they kind of have excess premiums? That's my understanding. Yeah, and so yeah, I'm I'm still in the process of kind of wrapping my head around this business a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's pretty standard for the insurance industry and something you'd expect to see. Um, they have a unique model, and yeah, that they are they are a little bit more charitable with the excess premium than a lot of insurance providers normally are. And that is a big selling point for them as a brand. And and part of, I think, why they are considered one of those more mission-driven, more millennial-oriented companies. Um, and certainly, a lot of people are coming online and needing these types of products, which is where the appeal comes in. For me personally, um, I'm actually one of their customers. I have their renter's insurance uh, and and was flabbergasted at how easy it was to get signed up. Uh, it's it's dumb simple to do. Um, and they came in at a more competitive price than anyone that I could see on the market. Um, what I do think is kind of interesting with the insurance industry in general is we have seen the rise both of companies like Lemonade that are more uh, kind of brand mission driven, also more tech oriented. But Brian, we've also seen aggregators and uh, basically people that will shop for you. They're, you know, the businesses like Policy Genius, which will go out there and get quotes from several different providers and then bring that to you. I think that is a little bit of a threat to the simplicity of Lemonade because you're able to shop among multiple providers. But having gone through that process as a renter, Lemonade beat what I got from Policy Genius mm. shopping around from multiple places. And so they, they seem to have some really strong pricing power um, and they're and they're really able to pass that along. And just you know, it's it's the strength of their data that they have. But I do wonder what that dynamic looks like for them over time. And one thing that I, I did think was kind of interesting, we got this new metric from management, and it's their annual dollar retention number. And so they're defining ADR as a percentage of IFP, that premium number we talked about before, retained over a 12-month period, inclusive of changes in policy value, changes in the number of policies, changes in policy type, and churn. And we like to see this, right? This is something we tend to look at for software businesses, anything that has an ongoing relationship with the customer over time. And their annual dollar retention number has trended up over time. It's up and to the right exactly the way you'd expect it to be, but it's at 81%. And for a customer-centric, um, really, really strong brand, I would kind of expect that number to be higher. Yeah, I mean, we're used to looking at software numbers that are not only higher than this, they are in the triple digit, meaning that not only is the company retaining on a revenue basis all of its customers, but it's actually getting more from its customers uh, in any given uh, period. Is that a fair comparison to this, or is there something that makes this number not exactly comparable there? 
I think they're pretty similar. They might be different brands of apples, but I, you know, I think to some extent it's an apples to apples comparison. Um, and and it, it is a little worrisome to me to, to see it that low, just given that the entire selling like point and the, and the really the the value prop to customers is the ease of use, the simplicity, and what you want to see with an insurance company long term is they bring people in and they keep them long term. They establish a great relationship with them. They have great data feedback coming in through their customers, and their their actuarial systems are only getting better as they retain those customers. Um, it's it's a little hard to tell how to interpret this because this is the first look we're really getting at it as a business. Great to see that it's improving, but a little lower than I thought it would be. Well, on the flip side, this company is primarily focused on renters insurance and how long, how long do people rent for? A year? Mm-hmm. Maybe two years? Maybe I mean, I don't know what the average is, uh, to be honest, but I can see just a lot of churn in that business just by the very nature of the thing they're giving out. So again, you can't necessarily compare that to a company like Olo that once you're, <laughs> once you're a customer, of course you're going to be a customer there for 10 plus years. Uh, but as you pointed out, it is trending in, in the right direction and there might be some dynamics that caused that number to, to fluctuate. Uh, so I'm glad that they report it. But uh, yeah, I agree. I would like to see it higher. Yeah. And, and thinking again about where this business is going in the roadmap for them, if they are able to offer things like car insurance and create bundling, then they have policies that are going to follow people as they transition through different phases in their life. And so maybe, you know, for them, they grab someone when they're in their 20s as a renter, uh, perhaps then they add a car maybe down the road, it becomes a homeowner's insurance policy and a car. You want to be able to be there for the lifetime of your customer and continue to build out products that suit wherever they are in their life. I think they're doing that. And I think that number is going to improve over time as they do. But I do think that of the things to look at on the report, you know, the the incident in Texas, that, that's a one-time event. Um, there are always going to be those, those possibilities. It's one of the risks of being in the insurance industry. But in terms of core business metrics to keep an eye on, I think this is one of the most important ones. Good to know. Based on this report, Dylan, are you more interested in becoming a shareholder or less interested? You know, I, I think it stays precisely where it was. Um, I've had nothing but really great experiences as a user. And because of that, it's staying on my watch list. Um, I need to really keep diving into the insurance industry and make sure I've got a really good grip on it just because this business is so much different than so many of the companies that we talk about often. But I like a lot of what we see. And I think if we start to see that trend emerge of more money coming in from existing customers because of that bundling, I think that's a really good sign and something that would make me very interested because they have a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of the insurance industry. Most people really don't like their insurers. You know, it, it's it's kind of a, an oppositional relationship. So if you can create brand affinity in the insurance industry, they're only a $3 billion business. There's a lot of room to grow. If this business doesn't work out, it's not because the opportunity wasn't there. Right. Yeah. Highly fragmented business. A lot of customers don't like their existing their existing provider, right? What more could you ask for? Exactly. All right. Uh, we have one more stock we're going to be talking through, and that is Jumia. Uh, I think folks probably have heard us talk about this one on the show before. Uh, this one's commonly known, Brian, as the Amazon of Africa. This is not a company that I was super familiar with, although I, I do know the gist of the company. And what's funny about Jumia is that it is a, a lightning rod of a stock. Uh, even internally at The Fool, I know people that own this stock, and I know people that are betting against this stock. So it is a uh, fascinating uh, company to, to watch. And just the if you were to take the, uh, the gist and just say, the Amazon of Africa, 
That sounds exciting. Uh, everybody yeah. knows that uh, Africa is a developing, uh, developing a continent. Uh, there are billions of consumers there. Purchasing power is growing. Uh, internet access rates are far lower than they are in developed parts of the world. So again, this is a company that, uh, if it works, the opportunity is massive. Yep, and and really, I mean, I think what's so compelling about this business, just you know, from a core thesis standpoint, is we have seen this model work. We've seen it work in the United States. We've seen it work in other parts of the world. It it conjures up a lot of the same thoughts as a Mercado Libre, and we can get into some of the specific, specific business segments that help illustrate that. But because you've seen it work in so many places, you would think it's got to work here too. And more importantly, name any big billion-dollar uh, e-commerce company. Where are they not operating? Africa. They are everywhere but Africa yeah. because it's so hard to do to do business there. So again, Jumia has a massive challenge, but if they can make it work, the opportunity is uh, is huge. Now, Jumia, if you uh, rewind the clock a little bit, uh, this company uh, was established a couple of years ago, and they were really in growth at any cost uh, mode for for a long time. They were a first-party seller, uh, which means that they would physically inventory and house the items that they sold and then uh, ship them out. A few years ago, uh, they shifted their focus from being a got to grow at any cost uh, model to being let's actually focused on 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 profitability uh, because of that they moved from they're, they're shifting their sales from being primarily first party the way that say Amazon did when it was first uh, created to being more third party which is more of like an eBay model where they're just a platform that enables commerce to, to happen as a part of that the company has been ramping up its investments into its payment uh, platform which it calls uh, Jumia pay so that is a something that the company has really emphasized. Uh, and then a few years ago, it actually, because of it, it got religion and was focused on profitability, it actually exited a couple of markets that it was in, uh, the Cameroon, uh, Tanzania, and, and Rwanda in 2019, as it has uh, increased its dependence on these third-party sellers. Uh, so as a result of that, when you hear this company's revenue number, you might not be impressed. But if you, if you have that context in mind, it makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, I think the book's of this business look exactly like the books of a business in transition. You know, we, we talk about it with with companies that are making that transition from uh, the license model to the software as a service model. The the books look ugly for a little while, and that's certainly the case here. Because for as exciting as an e-commerce play in a developing part of the world is, um, you would expect the growth rates to be astronomical, and that's not the case, at least with the top line here. Yeah, and another thing that makes this uh, even more wonky is currency uh, movements. Uh, this company is uh, denominated in uh, in Germany, so it, it reports in, in euros, but it does business in all these other African countries that have their own currencies. And then the numbers we are seeing get translated back into US dollars. So you, this is a company that you really have to look beyond just the, the headline numbers and focus on some of the core operating metrics. Uh, let's dig into some of those. So the uh, number of uh, active customers on the platform uh, grew 7% to 6.9 million. The number number of orders on the platform grew 3% uh, to 6.6 million and gross merchandising volume fell 13% to 165 million. Management explained on the call that they are purposely shifting away from high ticket items like electronics towards more low priced everyday everyday purchases in order to deepen their relationship with the, their consumers. That explains the 13% drop in uh, gross, uh, gross merchandising volume. On the payment side, the numbers look a little bit better. 
The number of uh, total payment volume using Jumia Pay, that grew 21% to $43 million. Uh, excuse me, the total payment volume grew uh, to 21% uh, to $43 uh, million. And the number of payments uh, on the platform grew 7% uh, to $2.4 million. You add all that together and factor in currency movements, and that explains why revenue dropped 6%. However, because they are shifting away from uh, first party and towards uh, third party sales, gross profit actually rose 11%. So that's why the context there is so key. Yeah, and it's hard to follow, but it makes sense when you start taking management's commentary and pairing it up with the financials. Um, This, I think, is something that benefits them long term. But we still need to see all of the gears start moving together. Right now, we're starting to see some of it, right, where we have the number of uh, orders going up, and that would imply, you know, it's it's not it's not rapid growth, but it at least sticks with the lower cost, more frequent purchase um, narrative. Um, but then, yeah, to see GMV going down, uh, that makes sense. If you're taking higher priced items away, that that's just what's going to happen. I mean, the first thing I thought when I saw these numbers was management really emphasized gross profit grew 11, percent and I was like. <laughs> You know, another company that's really focusing on gross profit now is Square because of their Bitcoin investments. They're really focusing on gross profit. So that's the story that this company is trying to tell. Focus on uh, gross profit there. So on that front, it grew 11%. They also did a good job of bringing down, uh, cutting costs out of uh, the rest of their business. Uh, So while they did produce an operating loss, uh, an adjusted EBITDA loss of $27 that figure was down 24% year over year, which again is a faster rate of decline uh, than revenue. Since it's a negative number, that's actually a good thing. Their net loss was almost cut in half to $21 million. Uh, so the losses are, are getting lower. And this company has been uh, issuing stock like crazy over the last uh, couple of months to bolster its balance sheet. It now has $485 million in cash on the books. So while the, the growth rates don't look good, uh, the company is executing on its plan. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, for, for folks that have been following this business for a little bit, if, if those share issuances, I don't know the timing of those, Brian, but if those have been within the last, you know, five months or so, they're doing it at a much higher valuation than they spent most of 2020. Um, this, is, this is a business that looked like it was on a rocket ship. You know, if you bought it in mid 2020, you're sitting on multi bagger, you know, in, in some cases, uh, almost 1000% returns, uh, depending on when you bought. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, 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 we, we got to see what they do from here as now a, you know, two and a half billion dollar business. Yeah. To your point in, uh, in March of last year, this was a single digits stock. Uh, I mean, three, three or four dollars. And, uh, in, uh, um, February of 2021, this stock was in the sixties. So you're talking about a 20 X return if you bought in, uh, at the bottom. More recently, the stock, like every other growth stock, has been heading in the opposite direction. Now this is back to $25. So yeah, depending on when you get in, uh, the story could look great or, or terrible. Uh, but if you're focusing on the, the operational results, again, not that impressive growth, but operationally, they're doing what they need to do to intercharge profitability. I think that's right. And, and I, you know, I mean, I called them the Amazon of Africa before. I think the Mercado Libre of Africa is probably a little bit more appropriate, um, specifically because when you look at the Jumia Pay segment, it's probably the thing to most be excited about when you look at this business. It's, you know, 20% growth in total payment volume. Uh, the number of transactions were up 7%. I mean, bo- both of those numbers are doing better than what we're seeing on the e commerce side. 
And so think about the the roadmap and how Mercado Libre built out Mercado Pago. You know, this started as something that enabled on-platform transactions and has blossomed into basically, you know, the the PayPal, uh, Venmo style peer-to-peer and and off-market option for folks in those geographies. It's not crazy to take something like Jumia Pay and forecast out that it could become something similar, which is a very compelling business in and of itself. You can pair that with an e-commerce platform, uh, especially one that has been moved over to third-party seller, maybe has a little bit more attractive business model, um, to think that that's packaged a really interesting business. It could be, but let's not call it the Mercado Libre of <laughs> Africa unless we say, we, except minus all the growth that, that Mercado Libre yes. does put up. <laughs> uh, but yeah, to your point, uh, Jumia Pay is an interesting product and it is making success. The company did note that uh, 37% of orders that were on its platform uh, that were made during the first quarter did use Jumia Pay. Uh, that was up significantly year over year. And Jumia Pay actually has a loan division where they're actually making loans to some of their, their sellers. Uh, the number of loans that they made grew 90% uh, to, to two, uh, and they made loans to 291 uh, unique sellers. I'm not sure how comfortable I would be with this company making loans, uh, but they think that they know that their customers are serially underbanked, so it can make sense to fulfill that need if indeed they do have, uh, have credits, uh, good credits. Another thing that's interesting to note about this company is that they have a network of pickup stations uh, throughout to the countries that they operate in, and they are rapidly growing this. Uh, they, they currently have over 1,600 pickup stations uh, throughout Africa, and these are places that they can ship uh, their deliveries to, and then customers come and pick them up, very similar to like an Amazon locker situation. And they noted that a lot of customers actually prefer to use the, the locker pickup instead of having a delivery done to their house. That might be just one of the quirks of uh, uh, consumer preferences in, in Africa, but they see that as a major long-term differentiator for this company that will keep people loyal to the platform. Yeah. And, and it makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I totally get it from them, from a logistics perspective, it's, it's a lot easier to pull something like that off too. It is. And they can offer their customers lower prices because they don't have to pay a third party uh, logistics provider to do the shipping. So uh, consumers might like that. And not only could it be, might, might be more uh, convenient and more secure, but the option to have it be lower priced, that's an attractive combination. Yeah, there's there's another element of this business that I think we might uh, you know tee up, and then it'll sound awfully familiar to people that have been following other marketplace businesses, Brian, and that's the advertising arm that they are building up. That is a experiment that they're working, and it ha- we have seen success on with uh, Amazon, with the likes of Etsy. So this company does know that it has an, an uh, audience base that is attractive to a lot of advertisers. The company did note that they ran over 283 ad campaigns on behalf of more than 137 advertisers, including some big-name companies like L'Oreal, uh, Adidas, and uh, Unilever. Uh, so that is a potential growth avenue for this business. Another growth avenue for this business is they're testing a product called, wait for it, Jumia Prime. I wonder where they got that name from. And that is exactly what you would probably guess it would be. It's a loyalty program where you subscribe for a monthly fee and then you get free delivery as well as access to a number of other benefits. They're just in the testing phase on that product, but we have seen Prime-like products work wonders on lots of other e-commerce sites where if if a consumer does willing to pay to become it, that the number of orders that they make skyrockets. So that will likely be a test that works out and gets deployed everywhere they can. 
Yeah. And and when you put all of these things together, I, I think it's easy to see why Jumia is a no-brainer watch list stock for me. You know, it's it's a business that has a ton of optionality. You know, the payments is interesting. Advertising, we know on the digital side, is a wildly high margin business and can be really great if you have some other low margin businesses um, to help kind of boost your gross profit across the board. Um, Prime is interesting. Logistics as a service is interesting. The e-commerce platform itself is interesting. Honestly, I just want to see it come together, Brian, because I think there's a lot to like here. I just don't quite have enough signs that the marketplace has traction. And I think that that's the thing that makes everything else go. The other thing they noted that is worth highlighting is that they're still dealing with the effects of COVID uh, where they are. I mean, we do know that COVID has, the, the timing of COVID has hit different geographies around the world at different times, and they are still in the thick of it uh, over there. So as a result, that might be one of the reasons why the numbers that we're seeing are not that impressive in a post-COVID world. Could that be an accelerant uh, for these guys? Uh, it, it, it's definitely possible. Uh, to your point, this company has massive potential and they have a lot of optionality and growth irons on the fire if they can execute the potential here is huge but that's a big if it's a big if and and i think what's what's key with this is a lot of this optionality is built off the thriving marketplace right like the the payment system being valuable you can you can have a wonderfully beneficial peer-to-peer system but if you can use it to interact with merchants at scale like that's really wonderful. The advertising is most valuable when you have a ton of users on a platform and you want to get your product in front of people that are already shopping for something. Uh, the logistics and the prime, like all these things require a thriving marketplace. And so I, I buy the narrative that's coming from management where they're focusing on what they think might be more useful and maybe more habit forming purchases for their customers. For me, I want to see orders moving a little bit faster than 3%. That's that's where I'm kind of getting stuck. I think that's a completely fair thing uh, thing to, to look for, especially uh, it, optionality is great when it can augment the existing business. Optionality isn't great when it's, hey, we have all these other things that we could do because our core business isn't doing what we want it to do. So to me, Jumia is in the latter camp right now. Sure, they have lots of potential growth irons on the fire, but I want to see the core business rocking and rolling before I care about those other things. All right, Brian, we talked about three different companies today. You don't own any of them. I'm going to put you on the spot here. If you had to force Olo. rank them. In- <laughs> Is it Olo and then the rest of the field? Uh, what, would, what would your number two be? Oh, my number two would be Lemonade for sure. Uh, to me, yeah. uh, to me, I look at J- Jumia and I just think, no, the company is just not showing me anything that makes this uh, compelling, especially when you think about all the other e-commerce companies that are uh, out there in the world that are just thriving. I mean, if, if uh, some of those companies are putting up uh, 50, 60, 70% uh, customer growth and revenue growth, when you compare that to Jamia, it's clear to me that they are still struggling. Uh, so without knowing the question, I answered a little too early. I thought you were going to say, which one is your favorite? That's always dangerous. <laughs> but to me, uh, the, the number one, Olo by far. Uh, I still can't wrap my head around uh, Lemonade, so that'd be number two. And then a distant third would be uh, Jumia. But how about you, Dylan? Yeah, you know, I, I think I would put uh, Lemonade and Jumia in similar footing. Like I said, they're both watch lists for a different reason. I, I think the path is a lot clearer for a company like Lemonade. We talked about it before that 
the TAM story in the fragmented insurance market is just, it's it's ripe for disruption and people want to be delighted in that space in the way that they're not currently being delighted. So I think that path forward is a lot easier for them. Jumia, I think the upside is incredible if they're able to execute. And we've seen the story play out. And and I've, you know, being a Mercado Libre shareholder, being an Amazon shareholder, been rewarded for buying into e-commerce theses before. Um, I just, I need a couple more signs that that thesis is on track before I buy in. Jumia is a $2.5 billion company. If this company really started to execute well and put up the growth numbers that we want, and you still bought into it when it was a $10 billion company, that to me doesn't matter. Because if this thesis is work, what could it be worth? This, is, this could be a $100 billion plus dollar idea in time, maybe even more. So I would not think that, man, I missed this if I didn't invest now. But I want to see clear signs that this model is working wonders before I would even consider putting it on my radar. That's exactly right. And we talk about it all the time. I'm happy to trade some upside for a little bit more certainty. Uh, you know, and there are other people who are, are happy to take on a little bit more risk. And, and maybe that's where, you know, this is already something that's in their portfolio. But, you know, if I start to see that certainty manifest, I'm going to be pretty interested in the upside. <laughs> Fair enough. There's a lot to like there. All right, Brian, thank you so much for joining me as always. Hope you have an awesome weekend. You too, Dylan. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Fool on.